Please turn with me in your Bibles to John 8. Now finished with John 7, transitioning into John 8. This morning, the title of our message was True Confidence. This evening, the title of our message is True Religion. James tells us in James 1.27, Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted. From the world. You know, as we serve God, there are many things in our service to God that are black and white, things which we know we ought to do, things which we know we ought not to do, things we ought to support, things we ought not to support. But there are some things in our Christian life that are not as easily discerned, things where the scripture gives expectations or guidelines, whatever the case may be, and yet, they are somewhat open to interpretation. We even think of the verse I just read in the book of James, James 1.27. Remain unspotted from the world. Now, this charge to us can be somewhat nebulous in its application. There could be a lot of different ways in which we could apply the concept of remaining unspotted from the world to our lives. We're called upon in Philippians 4.8. We talked about it this morning a little bit in Sunday school. That whatsoever things are true, honest, just, pure, lovely, of good report, virtuous, praiseworthy, that we are to think on these things. Yet it is left to us, through the leading of the Holy Spirit, to understand, to discern, and then to apply what things are, in fact, worth thinking on, because they are, in fact, true, honest, just, pure, lovely, of good report, virtuous, and praiseworthy. However... For all of the ways in which our exercise of religion can have different manifestations, for all the ways in which we have perhaps different interpretations, there are certain tenets of religion that are imperative if we are to serve God properly. And in John 8, verses 1 through 11, which is where we find ourselves this evening, we're going to look at three of those imperatives, three lessons regarding the nature of true religion. These are going to be broad. These are going to be general. But I think that they are going to be uh, good reminders to us. It should be nothing. There should be nothing in this sermon that you do not already know. And yet this example in John 8, 1 through 11 is so dramatic. It's something that we might even need to wrestle with a little bit. And it will help us understand some tenets of true religion. And so let's look at it together. I'm going to go ahead and read the, the, all 11 verses together, and then we'll talk about it. John 8, verse, beginning in verse 1. Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery, and when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master... This woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? This they said, verse 6, tempting him that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he had heard them not. 
So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted of their own, in, by their own conscience, excuse me, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted up himself, he saw none but the woman. He saith, said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Three lessons, three imperatives regarding true religion in our lives. The first one we see in verses 1 through 6, beginning in verse 6 at least, true religion leaves no room for dishonesty. True religion, it leaves no room for dishonesty. We pick up in John 8 with Jesus still in Jerusalem. Presumably he is still at the Feast of Tabernacles that he had attended and and we, we... we see record of him attending in John 7. Now verse 1 mentions that he went to the Mount of Olives. It would seem that Jesus often would spend his evenings, his nights on the Mount of Olives when he was visiting Jerusalem. This would coincide with Jesus' testimony in Matthew 8 verse 20 that the Son of Man hath hath nowhere to lay his head. He doesn't have a place to stay. So perhaps he went to the Mount of Olives to stay the night because there was nowhere else. He had no place to lay his head. Now, this is a a very definitive contrast. Look with me uh, back in John 7, uh, verse 52 and 53. Remember the context of this. Uh, We're we're at the Sanhedrin Council and Nicodemus has just spoken up and said, Does does our law judge any man before he has heard him? Does, Does our law do that to any man? And Nicodemus kind of pacifies the situation. Look at verse 52. They answered and said unto him, Art thou also of Galilee? Search and look, for out of Galilee ariseth no prophet. We recall that. And then verse 53, And every man went into his own house. Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives. A definitive contrast here. Describes the Sanhedrin after their wicked scheming, going to their homes while Jesus, the Prince of Life, the king of all that is, the very Messiah himself, while these wicked men depart to their homes in comfort, Jesus Christ, having nowhere to lay his head, departs to the Mount of Olives for the night. That's the contrast that I believe the writer is attempting to draw here. These these men, they go to their homes. Jesus, he goes to the Mount of Olives. Verse 2, And early in the morning he came again, into the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down, and he taught them. Now, before moving on, it is important to mention that nearly every scholar, both of this century and of the last century, reject John 7.53 through 8.11 as not originally in the inspired scriptures. They believe that this particular chunk of Scripture from John 7.53 to John 8.11 was added much later in time. Now, they use two reasons to defend this. Number one, they say it is not in the oldest manuscripts. Now, these oldest manuscripts are those which they consider to be the best manuscripts. You and I consider those to be corrupt manuscripts. That's one reason. The second reason why they say that this is not original is because... It is not found quoted 
by any of the early church fathers. So as they're reading the lectionaries, as they're reading um, the writings of Augustine and Origen and uh, all of these uh, early writers who would tend to give commentary on the text, none of them quoted this particular text. And so they say, there must not have been any reason. They must not have even had the text because it's not quoted. Various scholars will thus disregard these verses to various degrees. Some will state that though it was not in the original text, it does in fact reflect the person and character of Jesus Christ. So it ought to be regarded as inspired even though it was added later. Others rejected outright, assuming it to be evidence of corruption in the text. In fact, as I looked through the Bibles, the only two Bibles I could find where this passage was not bracketed or footnoted or something that said these, this passage should not be in your Bibles, the only Bibles I found that did not do that were the King James Version and the New King James Version. Now, we at Legacy Baptist Church stand upon the Word of God that it has been both verbally, inerrantly inspired by God and perfectly, perpetually preserved in the Greek, the Hebrew, and the Aramaic. We have strong evidence that leads us to the conclusion that the oldest manuscripts, those ones that people rely on most regularly, are in fact corrupt, for they differ largely with one another, as well as differing from the largest body of manuscripts known as the Byzantine text or the Textus Receptus, uh, two different texts that are uh, derivatives one of the other. To that end, we recognize God's divine preservation to rest upon these later manuscripts, which we faithfully read as they had been faithfully compiled by the, in the Hebrew Masoretic text and the Greek Textus Receptus. And because of that, we place no doubt upon the testimony of John 7.53 through John 8.11. We do not believe that it should not be in our Bibles. We believe it's there. We believe God chose it to be there. And we rest in God's providential pres- uh, preservation. We have maximum certainty that God's Word is what He intends it to be for us today. Continuing in the text. Verse 2 tells us that the next day, early in the morning, Jesus returned to the temple to teach the people. Now, most likely, the people would have circled around him as he taught. So Jesus Christ is teaching. All the people circle around Jesus Christ to listen to him, as you would typically expect, you know, come listen to a story. The people aren't going to be standing in a long line down the hall either way. They're going to circle around to get as many people as possible surrounding Jesus Christ. Well, the scribes and the Pharisees, it describes in verse 3, brought unto him a woman taken in the very act of adultery. Now, we do not know the act. It really doesn't matter. The scribes say unto Jesus, look with me in verse 4, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. And their question... Moses, in the law, commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? Now, as we consider this question, let me, let me just say this. This is a very dishonest question. It is a very dishonest question. John 18.31, we'll get there when we get to John 18. John 18.31 teaches us that under Roman law, it was not lawful for any man to be put to death without Roman trial. By extension, 
under the Roman system, the Mosaic law had no power over this woman. Now, this places Jesus in a difficult situation. If he affirmed that, yes, indeed, under the Mosaic law, this woman was to die, then they could accuse him of insurrection, of, of saying that, that they should do something that is contrary to the Roman law. They could accuse him of treason, rebellion. In light of Roman law, however, if Jesus was to say that she should not be put to death, then they would accuse him of not being faithful to the Mosaic law. And by not being faithful to the Mosaic law, they surely he could not be Messiah. Because if he was Messiah, he comes under the law, he comes obeying the law. And so this is a catch-22 for Jesus Christ. Where either answer gets him in trouble, and that's exactly what the people want. That's exactly why the scribes and the Pharisees did it. And here, we pause to consider the spiritual character of these men as revealed in the fruit of their actions. Now, adultery is sin against God, no doubt. These men are spiritual rulers in Israel and were given the divine responsibility of leading the people into godliness. But, instead of using religion as a means by which to guide the people into a proper worship of God, these men took religion and were using religion as a weapon. Instead of using religion as a guide, they were using it as a weapon against their enemies. As I consider this, this was what came to my mind. How dare men twist true religion, pure religion, and use it as a weapon against others? How dare men take something as sacred as worship, pious worship of the one who love them, of the God of the universe, of the creator of the universe, the one true God, and seek to destroy the lives of others with those things that God has put in place for our worship unto him. How dare men, in the name of God, fulfill their carnal misconceptions of justice and their self-righteousness with which they designate as a means of drawing near unto God. Now, we can trace this spiritual dishonesty throughout the centuries. We see spiritual dishonesty in the Pharisees here. We see this same idea of using religion as a weapon all throughout the thousand plus years of dominance of the Roman church. The Roman Catholic church was notorious for using religion as a weapon against its enemies. If the Pope didn't like what the king was doing, he excommunicated the king. The king was no longer going to heaven because the Pope said so. And all of a sudden, the king has to do what the Pope says because if the king doesn't do what the Pope says, then he can't go to heaven. Religion is being used dishonestly as a weapon against the enemies of the Pope. The Crusades were a means by which the Pope used religion to form an army with which he destroyed his enemies. Dragging the name of Christ through the mud as they killed in His name. As they pillaged in His name, as they destroyed in His name. Doing the same thing with the priests, doing the same thing with the people. Throughout the centuries, the Roman Catholic Church has used religion as a weapon for thousands of years. But we see it in the true church today as well. Ways in which religion is used as a weapon. Used 
unto dishonest ends. Have you ever told somebody, a Christian, that something is wrong, that something is a sin, be it something like getting drunk or be it something like wearing certain clothes or listening to certain music or whatever the case may be, and you've heard the phrase, judge not lest ye be judged. It's using religion dishonestly. It's taking a passage of Scripture, drawing it out of context, and using it to attack someone that is attempting to guide you in the way that is right. Have you ever seen a church use a pet sin and take that pet sin and use it to go on a witch hunt? Maybe that sin is divorce. Or maybe it's certain music. Or maybe it's certain clothing. So there are factions that arise within the church based upon preferences. And these preferences are used to include certain people or exclude certain people from certain privileges, from certain groups, from certain activities. You say, Pastor, that doesn't happen in churches. It does. Carnal churches, to be sure. But these are churches that are taking religion and using it as a weapon to separate people, to divide people, to confuse people, to elevate people and lower other people. It's using religion dishonestly. It still happens today. Now, what am I not saying? I am not saying that there are no times to judge. That's not even what the sermon is about, so let's not go there. I'm not saying that there are no times to judge men. I'm not saying that church discipline is wrong. I'm not saying that there are not times where we need to take sides. None of that is what I'm saying. What I am saying this evening is that there's never a time where the Word of God ought to be seen as a weapon of manipulation or a weapon uh, of, of any sort to accomplish our personal ends. We teach people. We guide people. We rebuke people. We root out false doctrine. We expose error. But we do not twist Scripture to compel people to see things our way or to maliciously attack those who aren't like us. This is dishonest and it is wrong. And here we see men who took the Word of God and twisted it and they are using it as a weapon, using it in a dishonest fashion to catch a righteous man in a difficult situation. May we never, ever, ever be guilty of using the Word of God, using true religion, using the precepts of God's Word or the character of God Himself to ensnare people or to trap people or as a weapon against anyone. As believers, we can have confidence to allow God's truth to speak for itself, to earnestly contend for the faith, to walk in the Spirit, to humbly but firmly rebuke error, to restore repentant sinners with compassion, all without using religion as a weapon against people. True religion leaves no room for dishonesty. Second point in verses 6 through 9 True religion leaves no room for hypocrisy. True religion leaves no room for hypocrisy. Jesus responds to this charge in verse 6. It says, But Jesus stooped down halfway through and with his finger wrote on the ground. And then our King James translator supplied this. You see it's in italics. It's not in the original Greek. As though he heard them not. So he is acting, or he, he just stooped down and began to write something. People always 
question. What did he write? We don't know. Pastor, can we guess? Sure, we can guess. Pastor, would it be profitable to guess? Probably not. I've heard pastors before, as they talk about this passage and they describe it, say that he was probably writing their sins. He, he knew their hearts and he was probably writing out their sins. I don't think so. And the reason why I don't think so is because, you know, Jesus never really stood on his own authority. He always stood upon the authority of the Word of God. So if he were to be writing anything that was to convict their hearts, what he would have been writing would probably have been verses in the Scriptures that would be highlighting the hypocrisy or the sins that they had in their own lives. However, I don't even know that it would have been that. And here's the reason why. Because as we look, if you look with me just a little bit farther, in verse 9 it says, And they which heard it being convicted. And so it was not so much what was written in the sand that convicted their hearts, it was what Jesus said that convicted their hearts. And so it really is useless to speculate as to what Jesus Christ was writing here because it seems like the King James translators were correct when they said that Jesus Christ stooping down and writing in the sand was a means by which for him to imply to them uh, some measure of uh, nonchalantness to this, some measure of disregard for their attempt to manipulate him. I don't think it was him trying to point anything out by writing in the sand. I think he was trying to point out the futility of their manipulation is really what I think. You can, you can um, judge for yourself whether um, you agree with me or not. But at some point while Jesus is writing, he lifts his head and said in verse 7, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. So the man that is without sin among you You cast the first stone. He then continued writing on the ground. Verse 8. The men, having heard Jesus' words, let the man that is without sin among you cast the first stone. Jesus' words spoken with such authority. Perhaps even some of the other things that Jesus Christ has been saying to the people as He's been teaching the people have smitten their hearts smitten their conscience. And so it says that they each, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. So from the eldest to the youngest, they begin to leave. So it was that just Jesus and the woman are there. Now, they're not alone. They're still in the midst. The people who had been listening to Jesus Christ are still standing around. The scribes and the Pharisees had broken into the circle, thrown the woman down, said, this woman was caught in adultery, taking the very act. Jesus Christ said his words, wrote in the dirt. The scribes and the Pharisees leave one by one, and there is this multitude with Jesus and the woman beholding with amazement the authority of Jesus Christ says in verse 10, When Jesus lifted up Himself, He saw none but the woman. He said unto her, Woman, where are thou those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? 
What was the problem with the condemnation of the Pharisees and scribes? Certainly, their judgment was dishonest. We talked about that. It was deceitful. And dishonesty was quickly exposed by truth. Yet, their judgment was also hypocritical. These men, by Roman law, had no authority to judge this woman with death. For only the Romans could put a person to death. These men, by religious law, also had no authority to judge this woman, for they were full of sin themselves, and yet they would presume to judge this woman in her own sins. And so their self-righteousness tumbled under the weight of their own personal sins, and their hypocrisy was the only thing left standing. As I was reading this passage and I wrote that statement, I, I, I thought of this house of cards, this stack of all of their self-righteousness that they've been placing up for months, years, whatever the case may be, building up in their hearts. Perhaps it was that they were adulterous men themselves and Jesus Christ, knowing their hearts, was, that was the reason why he said, let him that is without sin cast the first stone. We don't know. But what we do know is this house of cards that they had built upon their own self-righteousness. When Jesus Christ said what he said and their consciences convict them, it just fell to pieces. And the only thing left exposed, the only thing left standing was their own hypocrisy. Hypocrisy has always been a problem in the lives of believers. There is not an age that goes by. There is not a church in this world. There is not one heart in this room that has not desired to pass himself off as something that he is not for the benefit of those who are watching. There is not a person in this room who doesn't desire to look or to sound godly. There is not a person in this room who, if there is ungodliness in their life, is going to want to expose that to the other godly people around us. But we need to know and we need to understand that hypocritical actions go nowhere with God. There is not one action done in hypocrisy that earns you any merit in the eyes of the only one that truly matters. And that one is God. So you sit there tonight and the people in this room think that you are nearly perfect. So you sit there this evening and others in this room believe you to be godly. So the others in this room think that you are a shining example of all that is spiritual. But here's the question. Is what you are in darkness the same as what you are in light? Are you in the church the same person you are at home? Does your character change depending on the people that you're around? Do you judge and condemn others in mind and heart for things that you do yourself? These are all manifestations of hypocrisy in our lives, whereby we are living one way among certain people and we, in fact, in our hearts are another way. And so we are trying to create a false standard or a false perception of who we are for the benefit of certainly ourselves at the expense of who we truly are. And what we understand from Scripture, we even talked about it in Sunday school this morning, is when we get to heaven and that there's that pile of wood, hay, and stubble, gold, silver, and precious stones, that pile is not going to be based upon what other people perceived of you. 
Gold, silver, and precious stones are not heaped onto the pile when some old lady looks at you and says, oh, aren't you a good boy? Gold, silver, and precious stones are not heaped onto the pile when somebody says, man, I just wish I could be as godly as. It doesn't matter what the person next to you or across the room or anywhere thinks of you as far as your spiritual life. What matters is your heart before God and how you are living that out in your lives. Now, we want to be an example. We sang it tonight. Be an example of the believer in word and conduct. We want to be an example. But being an example is not the idea of being false in our example. It is not the idea of me as your pastor getting up here every week and saying a bunch of good things and then going home and doing the exact opposite. I am talking the talk, but I'm not walking the walk. Well, nobody sees me at home. Yes, but that's not me being an example, and I'm not building any gold, silver, and precious stones in heaven for saying something to you and doing the opposite when I get home. That's hypocrisy. There's no reward before God for that. See, true religion leaves no room for dishonesty, but true religion leaves no room for hypocrisy. If it is in your life, you need to find it. You need to pinpoint it. You need to contain it, and you need to root it out. Sometimes it takes time. None of us are perfect. So don't try to pass yourself off as perfect. Because you're not. I'm not. You're not. We don't need to be. Now, we ought to be right. We ought to have good decorum. But when we come here and we sing the songs and we smile and we have the joy and people ask how our, how our week goes and oh, the Lord has been so good and oh, is that just something you're saying or is that what you're meaning? Is that something that's coming out of your brain that says this is how I know religious people talk or is that something coming out of your heart because that's what's truly in there? It doesn't mean that we need to start being slobs and start being being the sinners that we are in the midst of the congregation. No, it just means that we need to bring ourselves up to the standard whereby we are living right because our hearts are right. That is true religion. True religion leaves no room for dishonesty. True religion leaves no room for hypocrisy. Third and finally today, true religion leaves no, or excuse me, always leaves room. We're changing up our outline here a little bit. True religion always leaves room for mercy. So all who have accused this woman, according to verse 10, are now gone. Jesus looks up, he says, Woman, where are thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? Well, now we have a very different situation. We've already talked about Roman law. Under Roman law, she would have had to have been tried anyway. We've already talked about Mosaic law and the realities of Mosaic law. But now, there are no accusers. That means that there are not even the two or three witnesses required in the Mosaic law to accuse this woman of adultery. And so Jesus asks her, hath no man condemned thee? And her response, verse 11, no man, Lord. And Jesus' response, absolutely beautiful. Neither do I condemn thee, Go and sin no more. We have heard Jesus Christ say this before. Let's change up the pace a little bit. Let's get interactive. 
Think back in John. Where has Jesus Christ said those words before? Go and sin no more. To whom did he say those words? I'm thinking of one particular example. Evan. Not the woman at the well. Taylor. Very good. The man with the infirmity at the pool of Bethesda. Recall he healed him of his infirmity. He says, take up your bed and walk. He takes up his bed and walks. He gets called on it by the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin pull, pull him before the council. Say, how dare you do carry your burden on the Sabbath day? He says, the man that healed me told me to take up my, my bed and walk. I was obeying him. Who was this man? I don't know. He then leaves the situation and Jesus Christ finds him. And he says, aha, you're the man. And Jesus Christ and all of this. And Jesus Christ tells him to go and sin no more. Now quickly, let's talk about what Jesus is not saying here to this woman taken in adultery. He is not condoning adultery. We cannot use this statement of Jesus Christ to say that Jesus was fine with this woman committing adultery. This is not a morally relativistic Jesus who thinks truth is in the eye of the beholder and so she's okay. Her truth is not his truth and he's not going to judge her based upon... He's not doing that. It's not that, that she is not guilty. This is not a situational Jesus. This is not a Jesus that thinks we need to consider the circumstances before calling something sin. Well, yeah, you know, the circumstances surrounding this particular act of adultery... Uh, it was a hard. It would have been a really hard one for her to to withstand the temptation and everything. So we're just going to cut her some slack. This is not a situational Jesus. This is not a morally relativistic Jesus. That's not what we're seeing here. What are we seeing in John eight one through eleven? We're seeing mercy. Mercy, unmerited pardon, not being given something I deserve. Under the Mosaic law, under the righteousness of God, according to God's great justice, this woman deserved to die. This woman deserved stoning for her sin. This is God in flesh, in his goodness, choosing not to condemn this woman for this sin. Now, throughout the scriptures, we see numerous instances where God does not deal with men according to the severity of their sin. King David was an adulterer. You remember him? He was not dealt with according to the severity of his sin. God saw David's heart of true repentance, and he did not do unto David what the law required of him for his sin. The extent of his physical consequence... For his sin was the death of his child, the child that was born in adultery. That was the extent of his physical consequence. Now, he had spiritual, emotional consequences. There would be uh, consequences that would redound into eternity, of course, that would hay, stubble, gold, silver, precious stones. But the, the extent of his physical circumstances, he didn't, he didn't die like he should have for his sin. The God who knows our hearts quite often joys in abundant mercy on our behalf. And you say, well, pastor, that's not fair. Perhaps you've heard it before. Well, thank God that he is not fair. Because if we served a fair God, we would all be burning in hell right now. God is not fair. Is he just? Yes. Is he righteous? Yes. But he's not fair. And we can thank God that he's not a fair God. 
Thank God that He is a God who responds to our heart of repentance and has abundant mercy for each of us. So, we see that God has mercy for you. God had mercy for this woman. The question to ask now is, do you have mercy for others? Particularly among we who are very conservative Christians, mercy can be difficult to come by. We know God's word. We have come to our conclusions as far as how we live our lives, the standards we've set, the ways in which we live. We have done so through great prayer. We have done so through careful consideration. We have purposes for what we do. We have reasons. We have desires. We are doing what we are doing because we believe that before God, it is the way in which we are presenting unto him our absolute best. We see the troubled lives of many, whether they are believers or unbelievers, as simply the consequences of of their poor decisions and lack of devotion to the commands and principles of Scripture. Now, we are perfectly within our rights as Christians to see how our application of biblical principles has benefited us as believers. It is our privilege to see how our model of living, how our desire to serve God in the way that we do has shaped us into true disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ has shielded us from many of the wickedness and the problems that are found in the world, including many professing Christians who are steeped in wickedness. But when our observations become judgments and when our perceived benefits become perceived superiorities, we begin to lose our heart of compassion for those who are lost in their sin. When you hear about mass shootings, teen suicides, the drug culture, the high number of women having children out of wedlock, high number of people that are on welfare and food stamps and not even looking for jobs, but just soaking off of our government. When you hear about an evangelical pastor who has yielded to homosexual marriage, when you hear about that minister that had an affair, when you see a church fall after compromise, what is your response? Is there a little part of you that smirks silently and mildly, rejoicing in the fruit of their unrighteousness and rejoicing in your superiority of the way in which you do life? Or can you feel burdened for those who have been enslaved by sin and error? Can you feel compassion upon people whose lives are a wreck? I read this verse, I believe, on a Tuesday night a couple weeks ago. Let me read it again. Proverbs 19.11 The discretion of a man deferreth his anger, and it is his glory to pass over a transgression. Let me read it again. The discretion of a man deferreth his anger, and it is his glory to pass over a transgression. It is the glory of a man to show mercy upon those who perhaps deserve no mercy. It is, a glor- it is the glory of a man to see in the hearts of the hurting when it is needful to rebuke and when it is needful to defer. 
just as it is my glory in certain situations with my little girls. When my little girl does something that she knows she's not supposed to do. And I have the opportunity from time to time to defer chastening of my child. To look at her and though she knows she deserves to be punished for what she did. And though I know she deserves to be be punished. From time to time it is my glory just to pass over that transgression. She knows. I can see it in her eyes. She knows she's done something wrong. I know she's done something wrong. From time to time, what a glory it is as a father to pass over that transgression. In just such a way, it is God's glory in certain situations to withhold judgment and condemnation from a woman taken in the very act of adultery. And so too it is our glory in certain situations to reflect mercy back upon a world that is mired in its own wickedness. We have learned much this evening. We learned that true religion leaves no room for dishonesty. We learned that true religion leaves no room for hypocrisy. But we learned that true religion always has room for mercy. We've asked the questions already, but as we close, let's ask them again. Do you use religion dishonestly? Using scriptures maliciously to affect your own gains apart from the true purpose of religion, which is to point others to a right relationship with God. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Do you exercise religion hypocritically, passing yourself off as something you are not, condemning others for the very sins which you commit, or changing your character to suit the occasion in which you find yourself? Do you have any room in your heart for mercy? Showing to others the kind of compassion that God has shown to you. As we go from here and we live out our lives this week, we will be considering on Tuesday night the mercy of God in the New Testament as we are now applying all that we've learned about God's mercy. Let's allow that to stack on top of what, we are, what we've learned tonight, or maybe the other way around. Let's allow this to stack on top of what we've learned on Tuesday night. To recognize the character of true religion. And to correct our lives against any potential areas of dishonesty, hypocrisy, or even any areas of unmercifulness that we have found ourselves in. And in doing so, pinpointing our own blind spots, rooting them out of our own lives, we can live our lives for the glory of God and not for the glory of ourselves.